I would like to welcome you all to our first virtual La Trobe Asia academic seminar series, China in Focus, which showcases China-related research across a diverse array of topics. I am delighted that our first speaker in our China in Focus series is Dr. Jeff Raby AO, who will be talking about his recently published uh, book by Melbourne University Press called China's Grand Strategy and Australia's Future in the Global Order. Uh, so this is a terrific read uh, and it's going, it's, it's selling very successfully. So we are delighted that Jeff has been able to join us. So Dr. Raby was Australia's ambassador to China from 2007 to 2011. After 27 years in the public service, he completed his ambassadorial term and in 2011 established Jeff Raby and Associates. As many of you would know, Dr. Raby has had a distinguished diplomatic career and has held a number of senior positions in the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, including as the Deputy Secretary of the Department from 2002 to 2006. Dr. Raby is the Chair of the Murdoch University uh, Vice-Chancellor's Advisory Board, Western Sydney University's Australia-China Institute of Arts and Culture and Viz Asia at the New South Wales Gallery. He is also a member of the board of the Garvin Foundation. And, of course, in addition to all of those roles, Dr Raby is also an advisory board member for La Trobe Asia. In recognition of his contributions to advancing relations between Australia and China and his contributions to multilateral trade diplomacy, Dr. Raby was awarded the Order of Australia in June 2019. Uh, welcome, Jeff. It is terrific to have you here today. I will hand it over to Jeff to present uh, on his book. Uh, and thank you, Jeff. Thanks, um, Beck, and thanks very much to the Trobe Asia. It's great to be here participating in this uh, seminar. And uh, in the introduction, Beck, you admitted to say that I'm a graduate several times over from the Trobe University. So I'm quite proud of that uh, and uh, always love to be associated with La Trobe in whatever, whatever way. So uh, welcome everybody. And as it's an academic seminar, I might be a little more academic uh, in my presentation uh, on this occasion and, and rather less uh, public policy advisory is as, as what really my professional background has been for the last couple of decades. Um, and to that end, I, I think I might just say a little bit about how the book came about um, and to give you some of the sort of intellectual background to it. Uh, whilst the timing of it's been remarkable, and uh, I thank the government every day for some new initiative or action, uh, such as the, uh, the tearing up of Victoria's Belt and Road MOU uh, last night, all of which uh, is very good for attention on the subject and hence sales of the book. Um, but the book really actually has a very long origin. Uh, not long after I'd been ambassador, and I should say, I, I, I first went to China in 1986 as first secretary of the embassy on what then was just a, a one year assignment to try and get a professional economic reporting capacity established in our embassy. And I was the first economist uh, ever posted to an Australian embassy uh, because we just didn't link foreign policy and economics in those days as we do, do now. Uh, and for various reasons, one year became two and then two became five. 
And that was a time when the maximum posting in, in, in a difficult post like Beijing was just two years, but I was delighted to spend five years. So I saw the beginning really of the Chinese economic reform, open door policy, uh, the policies that were adopted then that have led us to where we are today. Uh, but when I finished ambassador, being ambassador in 2011, around that time, I read two um, quite influential books, which went into a uh, lecture I was invited to give by Monash University, which was the Richard Larkin oration, which I gave in August 2012. And the two books, one was uh, uh, Kissinger's uh, on China. And being a realist foreign policy person myself, I'm very much influenced, uh, of course, by Kissinger and attracted to his way of viewing the world. And I think it's an excellent book. Uh, and, and for those with uh, not a lot of background on China, uh, it's a wonderful way into China's foreign policy, how it sees itself and its place in the world. But it had a curious ending, and it might have been simply because he wanted to finish the book and couldn't think of uh, how to round it off. But um, he made a very, um, what I thought almost naive assertion that the future of the world looked like it would be managed through G2, a, a, an ever increasing powerful China, but a still dominant US. And essentially the G2 would be leading the world um, in a cooperative fashion, but the order, the rules-based order as we call it, which actually is a misnomer, um, but the, the, the post-49 uh, system uh, established largely by the United States would continue to be the dominant uh, system. He then, though, went on and asserted, and this was what really got me thinking about the subject and led to the book, he asserted that uh, China historically had not been an expansionary power and therefore would not be an expansionary power into the future. And I thought, hello, I mean, this is, for, for a guy like Kissinger, this is an odd way to base your, an odd foundation, a very weak foundation on which to base your security policy, an assumption about the future behavior of another state. And I even think the, um, the history is very um, debatable. It's certainly true that uh, uh, earlier dynasties in China, such as the Ming, were not expansionary, but the Manchu were very expansionary. And the Manchu borders basically, you know, brought in Tibet, Xinjiang, all of Mongolia, and half of Kazakhstan as we know it today. And of course, interestingly enough, and I point this out in the book, Taiwan today, the KMT in particular, uh, on their maps of China, show the Qing borders, not the current communist uh, borders, which are much um, uh, smaller than, than, than the expansionary Qing. But the argument to that, of course, is that, well, the Qing weren't really um, Chinese. They weren't Han Chinese. They were invaders from essentially the Mongolian steppe. And um, therefore, it still stands that China historically hasn't been an expansionary power. But I'm still left with a quandary about you know, how, how can you base security policy on, on, on such a, an assertion? But that led me to ask the key question, which really did lead to the book, and that was, um, assuming the worst about China, assuming China inherently is an expansionary power, 
what then is China's capacity to actually expand? What are the constraints, in other words, on China's power? And I guess I've come at this geopolitical question reflecting my uh, background as a trained economist. Economists tend to think in terms of constraints and opportunity costs and those sorts of choices. Um, I found in the strategic literature uh, a much more willingness to just think about what's possible and talk and write about what's possible rather than attaching probabilities to the possibilities. And from a practical uh, public policy point of view, what really matters is, is trying to understand the probability of certain actions. So I started to think about uh, China's constraints in response to, to Kissinger's um, assertion. And that basically led to a big chunk of what the current book is about. And it's in the second part of the book that I refer to China as Prometheus bound. That is, it's a constrained superpower. And it's an unusual way of looking at China. But given I've lived for the last 13 years in Beijing, and for much of that time, I've been involved when I was in government, for example, trying to understand how China thought about the world, how China sees the world around it, and trying to explain that to uh, the Australian government and Australian business and academics and so on. Um, it gives you a different perspective of, on how the world looks in security terms if you view it from a Chinese perspective. And what I argue is that um, China's a constrained superpower, uh, first of all, because of geography. It has 14 countries on its border and 22,000 kilometers of land border to defend. So if you're sitting in Beijing, the security issues are not so much in the, uh, in the Pacific or, or, or the Western Pacific, uh, but rather as they've always been for China in Eurasia, in the, in, in the Asian landmass where all of China's security threats and challenges until relatively recent times have come, um, come from. Uh, secondly, I argue China is uh, still an empire with unresolved territorial issues inside its borders. Uh, think Xinjiang, much of the news today, uh, Tibet, Taiwan, of course, and more recently, um, Hong Kong. So again, from a Beijing security perspective, this, this really matters. You're, you're still trying to hold an empire together. Um, thirdly, and this is probably the most original aspect of the book, I argue that China is massively constrained by its resource endowment. When you consider China for 3,000 years or however long you wish to measure it, was basically self-sufficient in all uh, its uh, resources, uh, raw materials and energy. Um, and then only from the mid 1990s, does China start importing things that are critical to its sustaining economic growth and, and prosperity. So as recently as uh, 1995, China is self-sufficient in crude oil. By the turn of the decade, early 2000, China is uh, starting to import a lot of crude oil. By the middle of the decade, it, it's, it's the world's biggest um, uh, importer of crude oil, and so it goes. And from all the main commodity and resource groups, except for rare earths, China 
has, in a period of a decade, gone from being largely self-sufficient, able to rely on its own internal resources, to becoming utterly dependent on world markets for everything it needs to survive. So from a Beijing perspective again, this is a horrendous security vulnerability and challenge. And in the 2000s, when this was happening and there was a, a, a belated but then sudden realization that China was becoming utterly dependent on the rest of the world for these things, and of course, very much for, on Australia for iron ore, and this was the, the uh, genesis of the uh, super resource cycle of the last decade, um, or of the first decade of the 21st century, um, the leadership felt that, uh, that uh, this was a major, major security risk. And especially because nearly all of those resources and, and, and energy, in fact, all of them, traveled to China via the Straits of Malacca and the South China Sea. Uh, doesn't surprise you when you look at it from, those, from this perspective that the South China Sea had in that first decade of the 21st century become such a prominent issue of security concern for China. Now, we may uh, uh, reject and, and, and are disturbed and upset by China, China's behavior in the South China Sea and its assertive foreign policy there, and that may be, that's perfect, that is a perfectly legitimate concern. But at the same time, of course, from Beijing's perspective, and they use this phrase over, over and again, is that the Straits of Malacca are like the boot on China's throat. Because the United States then and now and for a long time into the future will have the naval preponderance to close those strategic choke points in a heartbeat. And in many ways, this is actually the origin of the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, the Belt and Road Initiative, and I talk a lot about this in the book, began long before, um, long before Xi Jinping stood up in Astana, Astana in Kazakhstan in October 23 and announced the Belt and Road. And in fact, it was a barely formed policy idea when he announced it. And, and this, this often happens in public policy. A leader will get up and uh, have, have a speech and the speech will announce an idea or a policy. Um, and uh, most officials have no idea what the leader's talking about. Uh, and this was very much the case with Belt and Road Initiative. And for a couple of years afterwards, um, people didn't know which was the which was the belt and which was the road and the, uh, who was in and who was out. Um, there's obviously a lot more clarity around it today, but it began very, very much as a way of looking for alternative trade routes for China to avoid this incredible strategic vulnerability that they suddenly found themselves with, uh, with respect to resources and energy traveling through uh, the South China Sea and Straits of Malacca. And so one of the first Belt and Road initiatives was actually a rail line from Chongqing to Deutschberg in Germany. And that goes back to about 2006. And in the same year, I actually traveled over the Kundra Pass uh, from Xinjiang to the Hunza Valley in northern Pakistan. And on the Pakistan side of the border, on the Chinese side, it was already a, a wonderfully paved, smooth road but the terrain is not so challenging. The Pakistan side is very challenging. But um, 
That was September 2006, seven years before she articulated the Belt and Road concept. And there was a string of um, Chinese surveyors all the way through the Hansa Valley surveying the road for its eventual upgrade because this road is the only land archery between Central Asia and the Indian Ocean. And of course, now it's connected to the Guala port in Pakistan. Um, and through this initiative, China's been able to establish strategic influence. Dominance still might be too strong a word, but certainly considerable influence over Central Asia and has opened up uh, Central Asia to uh, a direct um, to, a, to a sea route that leads directly to the from the Indian Ocean to Europe. So these were all major, major initiatives well before there was a political articulation of what Belt and Road was all about. Um, but I, I belabored the point really to talk about, uh, to emphasize the extent to which uh, China felt so strategically vulnerable when it became dependent on the rest of the world for, for um, uh, resources and energy. And, and I should just give another example. Um, one of the other early Belt and Road projects, which went into uh, operation, uh, was finished and went into operation as, uh, in 2015, was a dual gas and oil crude oil pipeline across Burma into Kunming, uh, capital of Yunnan province. And when the oil started flowing through that pipeline in uh, 2015, it was the first time China imported crude oil from the Gulf um, uh, without having to go through the Straits of Malacca. And it's worth reflecting that when Vasco da Gama went around, um, around the Cape of Good Hope, I think somewhere in the late second half of the 15th century, um, when you change trade routes, you can change the world. And, and it's, these are, these are non-marginal developments, I think, in global strategic settings. Um, so the other constraint, uh, which I've write, written about, which is geography, empire, resources and energy. And the other one is soft power. And I argue that China's constrained in terms of global influence and shaping the world by a lack of um, uh, a lack of soft power, and I argue that that's because whilst Chinese culture is traditional, historically Chinese culture has been enormously influential, very influential in the West um, and elsewhere, um, and is is much loved and admired um, by so many different people. Contemporary Chinese culture and the way China tries to project soft power today, unfortunately, is systemically constrained by being um, refracted, if you like, through the Communist Party's propaganda structures. So Chinese soft power, official soft power today, comes out at the other end like propaganda. And whilst it might sell well inside China, um, certainly doesn't have um, much attraction for people outside of China. So consequently, uh, whilst China can't match um, the US in, in, in hard power, it, it will one day perhaps, but it's a long way behind still, um, and it's soft power despite vast investment in soft power, um, that really uh, has been found wanting and is unlikely to expand China's influence. And in fact, I really think um, there's a very big problem for China because this is 
its soft power and the way it's viewed around the world is going backwards quite quickly. Um, China finds itself really in terms of instruments of statecraft uh, left with very few. And I've gathered them together in a in a box, I guess, which is called, um, which I call sharp power. Now, it's not my invention, but I find sharp power is a useful term for things like uh, influence that China seeks to exert via um, interfering in domestic politics through cyber interference or cyber warfare, uh, just through bribery and corruption and any other vehicle that may be used um, that, 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 that doesn't fall into soft power or military power um, categories. And so um, I think in terms of statecraft, what we see more of and are seeing more of and will in future, because China is unable to influence the external environment um, in its favour um, using more traditional soft power mechanism, it is um, uh, reverting more and more to sharp power. And Australia has been very much at the receiving end of that, both through influence and through economic coercion, uh, which for China are all seen as legitimate instruments of statecraft. Uh, we quite rightly have a different view, but that's uh, how, how Beijing sees the world. So essentially uh, you have this enormous uh, uh, economy, um, a major global power, uh, the dominant power in the East Asian Asian region, um, but it's constrained and it's limited. And I think it's very important that we understand that because uh, uh, I think we have tended to, in the West, uh, exaggerate uh, in all respects the China threat and China's capacity to actually shape the world in its in its own interests. So all of that, as I began by saying, was stimulated by reading Kissinger's on China and then just thinking through what were the constraints on China's ability to act and, 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 and the extent to which China would be an existential threat to Australia, which I, I reject um, and argue that it is not an existential threat to Australia because of all these constraints. Um, but there's another element of another book I read around the same time, which I think is very, very important. And that was Hugh White's book uh, called The um, uh, the China Choice. And like all uh, good books and, and particularly good selling books, uh, uh, a lot of people know the title, but actually have never read the book. Because people mistakenly think that the China choice that Hugh is writing about is a choice that Australia has to make between US and China, between our security, our economic interests. But his China choice is the choice the United States would have to make. Now, remember, he's writing, I think, in 2010, 2011. So that's a decade ago almost. But he saw the inexorable rise of China and concluded that at some point, um, the US, which then was following policies of engagement with China, uh, would have to decide whether it would continue to engage with China and provide China with strategic space, or whether um, uh, it would resist China's rise, like great powers have done mainly, mainly done so throughout history. Not always. Uh, we, you know, think of the example of uh, Great Britain uh, co-opting and cooperating with the United States as a rising power, but by and large history is full of examples of 
great powers resisting the ascendant power. Although um, in no way is Hugh, Hugh's book about a sort of predetermined Thucydides trap, but rather he's saying this will be a decision the US will have to make. And we now know what decision the US made. From about 2014 or thereabouts, the US think tanks, conservative think tanks increasingly started to define China um, uh, as, a, as a strategic threat and to move away from engagement to containment. Now, none of this happened overnight and it's been an evolving policy, but it probably first reached its clearest policy articulation in the national security strategy uh, put out by the National Security Agency in uh, October 2017, when explicitly China was defined as a strategic threat and that the policy was shift from engagement to containment or competition. And so um, Hugh concluded his book by warning Australia that the China choice the US makes would have profound implications for Australia one way or the other. And we also know now uh, what those implications are for Australia flowing from the US deciding to treat China as a strategic competitor. Um, uh, from that, uh, we have basically joined ourselves to the hip with the United States. And although there is no respect that China is our strategic competitor, we have since about 2017 consistently adopted policies that treat China as if it were our strategic competitor. Now, I for one have been uh, a big critic of uh, Australia's involvement in the quadrilateral grouping. It's had many, many different names. And at one point for many years, it was the name one shall not speak or murmur, um, but now it's come out of the shadows and it's in full full light um, and it's meeting at summit level heads of government and it's going to be the agency by which Australia will hope to push back with the United States against China. The problem I have with us being part of the quadrilateral had nothing to do with, and I'll get onto this a bit when we talk a little bit about policy in a minute, um, with us hedging and pushing back on China and raising the cost to China are bad behaviour. They're all things we need to find ways to do. Um, the problem with the Quad in particular is that three of the members of the Quad are China's strategic competitors. Uh, US obviously is the dominant power, Japan for all its historical and other um, uh, reasons, and India with, like Japan with uh, very live territorial issues uh, still unresolved. We don't fit any of those categories. And in my view, we have no business being there. Um, but as I said, we do need to develop policies that will we'll, uh, hedge. But before I go there, um, just to finish off on, on Hugh's book. So we have found ourselves in the middle of the greatest power shift that's happened in modern history. Uh, but I would argue uh, because we chose to maintain what we believe as the sort of the natural order of things uh, and align ourselves so closely with the United States, that our policy, whatever we say, uh, is basically a policy based on resisting China's rise and containment. And that seems rather odd for a country that depends so heavily on China as an economic partner and will continue to do so 
for as far as the eye can see. Um, and at the same time, we are in the region where China is located, and uh, it is already the dominant power in the region. So um, we have uh, made the choice, uh, along with the United States, and are in a, um, we are now living through the very, very real and challenging uh, foreign policy challenges that uh, Hugh imagined uh, all that time ago when he wrote his book. So um, what, what do we do about it? Well, well, first of all, I think we need to recognize this, the, the world we're in now. And, and part of the title of the book is the new world order, uh, a new global order. And the order has changed, has changed, uh, in my view, for all time. Uh, as I indicated a bit earlier, we can argue about whether there ever was a single rules-based order led by the US, but there certainly was um, uh, a liberal order that was dominated by US power, uh, which uh, no longer is the case. There are, we are, the uni, unilateral moment Unipolar moment has gone. Um, we're in a multipolar world. I think everybody now would start to agree with that. But what I argue in the book that's emerged and already has emerged, but it's not well recognized, is that the order now comprises basically two substantial bounded orders. One that looks and feels a bit like the old order as we understood it, led by the United States, but another order that is already led by China and this order basically embraces much of, if not all, of Eurasia and various other parts of the world, the large swathes of Africa and, and, and so on. And this has all the characteristics of, of an order. It has a single dominant power um, that provides stability in the order. And it also has institutional arrangements uh, which shape and define the order. And again, something we don't talk much about in Australia is the, um, for example, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, initiated, conceived, and created by China, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, um, the BRICS Development Bank. Um, there's a lot of a lot of multilateral architecture has been created, and then you overlay that with uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, all driven by Beijing. And if you look at what these bodies are doing, they're, they're doing things that are very conventional, like you know, standard setting um, and uh, uh, you know, um, uh, rulemaking, even if the rules aren't by uh, binding rules, they're, they're making rules and, and setting standards and and basically shaping a parallel a parallel order. And you know, Huawei is a very good example of this. Um, whatever you think of us banning Huawei, good or bad, I don't know. Um, although I have problems with the diplomacy, how we managed it, um, it is quite clear that Huawei is the digital backbone of Eurasia stretching from Beijing to Warsaw, if not beyond. Uh, and this will only gain more momentum. So that's the, that's the sort of world we find ourselves having to navigate. And um, I guess in many ways where my book ends up is that in this very challenging for Australian world, 
um, and all the old certainties have gone. Um, and we cannot, as we have throughout all our history, rely on a single dominant power whose values we share. We, we've got nothing left. Uh, and we can't defend the country, although I do argue for increased military expenditure. I do argue for hardening our defences in cyber and anti-foreign interference and so on. Really, all we have left to work with is diplomacy. And yet, at a time when diplomacy has never been more important, um, foreign policy is increasingly being weaponized in Canberra, taken over by the security intelligence and defence agencies, especially with respect to China, um, and investment and resources and diplomacy are being run down. Uh, but to give people a sense of hope and possibility, um, I set out in the book a bit of a, a brief history of uh, Australia's diplomacy of the last 20 years, where or 30 years, where as an active middle power diplomatic actor, we were able to do a whole lot of things which uh, increased our security and prosperity um, and, and basically contributed to a, a much better international system. Uh, and we were very good. APEC, for example, was our initiative and we created APEC. We created the Cairns Group of Agricultural Free Trading Countries and got agricultural trade for the first time brought into the global system of rules, which was of enormous benefit to developing countries. There's a whole lot of stuff that we did because we had strong political leadership of our diplomatic effort and well-resourced economic, um, uh, well-resourced well diplomatic um, uh, service. Uh, and I feel that's the only way we can deal with the rise of China uh, and, and how we need to position ourselves. We ought to uh, develop strategies of hedging, uh, which are not containment, but are about putting together alliances and coalitions of countries that when China leans on one, uh, China knows it leans on all and that there will be costs. Um, and that, that can operate at a smaller, narrow regional level or, or more multilaterally. And equally, it shouldn't be defined by, the, uh, by geography. You know, for example, there's a very good case. And you see some ideas like this starting to come out of Britain now um, where there's no reason why Australia wouldn't work with uh, uh, across Europe with like-minded democracies uh, arguing, you know, human rights cases, for example, and taking up those issues. But there's no value for Australia and, and no possibility of any progress if, if we want to try and do these things on our own. And equally, we have to have an independent standing, uh, an authenticity about our foreign policy, so that we're not just seen to be a cipher for the United States, which we so often are. And I'll stop on this point, but... Uh, I've often said that uh, China's so big, powerful and ugly these days, uh, and I think we're seeing this being lived out at the very moment, um, we, uh, China, has, China has no need to talk to the monkey if it can go straight to the organ grinder. And so China stopped speaking to us because they regard us as the monkey. Uh, but of course, dialogue between China and the US continues. Uh, and that's all to the good, of course. So Beck, look, I might stop at that point. That's a... Bit of a coverage of the book and take some questions. 
Well, there's certainly a lot that you have covered in that discussion, and I'm sure that we have uh, plenty of questions from the audience. Uh, so if you can please uh, put up your hand using the reaction function, I might kick us off with a question about the nature of order. And you talk in your book and, and in your presentation about parallel orders, uh, an old sort of regional or global order that was led uh, by the United States and a new challenger order that's being led by uh, China. I'm wondering where you stand on the debates in um, the strategic circles around the Cold War 2.0. Do you see what's emerging as being similar uh, to the strategic competition and containment strategies between the US and, and the Soviet Union during the Cold War? Or are you sort of talking about something different emerging? And the other question I'd ask about, and one of the things that, that I find unusual about the rules-based order is that what China seems to be wanting is actually quite a traditional order based on norms of Westphalian sovereignty, a point that is raised in your book. Uh, so, uh, why, what do you see as being the driving, why has this narrative of a rules-based order emerged in your view? Why has it been something that states have adopted uh, in their strategic narratives when they're talking uh, particularly about China and its role in the international and regional order? Yeah, um, great questions. Um, I'm not sure if I could do them justice, Beck, but they're great. Look, on the Cold War one, I could probably deal with that more quickly. Uh, I, I just think I think the world is so different and China is such a different power that it just doesn't make any sense to me to talk about Cold War 2.0. I just don't recognise it. Uh, you know, for a start, um, uh, China is not an ideologically driven power. It's, it's, not, it's not pursuing an ideological agenda. It doesn't, and maybe I should have made this clear in my presentation. I mean, what I argue in the book is that uh, China's grand strategy is based on weakness, not strength. China's grand strategy has two key components. Um, uh, both are internal. One is, one is uh, just to keep the integrity of the Chinese state, geographical integrity of the Chinese state together. And you need to go back to the founding of the People's Republic in 49. What the communists took over in China in 49 wasn't a state. It wasn't like the Bolsheviks taking over an established state or others doing so. They, they, they occupied shards of territory across this vast area we call China. And then they had to piece it together and wield it together, weld it together to create uh, the People's Republic of China, a state. So territorial integrity, which is actually a very internally focused concern, is a dominant consideration in the grand strategy. And secondly, is to keep the Communist Party in power. And uh, both are mutually reinforcing. You know, you need a strong centralised power like the Communist Party to hold the place together and, and to defend the place against foreigners who are always trying to tear it apart. Um, uh, and uh, if you lost any territory, if you showed any weakness or ceded any territory, the Communist Party would be finished or whoever the, the ruling party was at the time. So this is very, very different than an uh, ideologically engaged Soviet Union that also had a policy of global revolution and expanding its influence globally through changing um, changing. Uh, 
political regimes around the world. Um, secondly, on the Cold War, China's so deeply integrated economically in every way. So, like, we're having all this discussion, terrible stuff happening between Australia and China. Yep. But last year, China was the single biggest recipient globally of inward foreign investment. More money went into China than went out of China. It's just not in any way uh, a meaningful comparison. Good for journalists, perhaps, but I don't think it has any analytical um, fibre. The the rules-based one is, is, is very interesting as well. I, 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 I'm not sure if I'm going to come at this um, in a way that you were thinking, but... Um, look, we, we bang on Australia endlessly about the rules-based order. We assume that there's a single rules-based order that everybody recognises and subscribes to. That's because the dominant power and Australia are, are, are like two drops of water in terms of you know, values, global outfoot, uh, outlook, um, uh, and, 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 and you know, our belief in, um, in uh, you know, legal processes of rules-based processes. But um, there are, in fact, many um, many different orders. And so, for example, take the South China Sea and the, um, and the International Court of um, Arbitration's decision in The Hague in 2016, July 2016. Um, uh, the US is not a member of the Law of the Sea Convention. It's therefore not party to that judgment, uh, China is, and China uh, exercised a right not to not to be subjected to its jurisdiction for this case. Australia has done that. In, uh, other states have done that, um, but we ignored all of that. We got a legal outcome, uh, and then we started uh, uh, lecturing China on following the rules and, and got to be part of a rules based order. It, it's largely self serving. I mean, it'd be wonderful if there was such an order. Uh, and the closest we have to it really is within the WTO. And unfortunately, the Trump administration spent the last four years trying to wreck the WTO and refusing to appoint the body judges and so on. So maybe that's a bit, bit discursive uh, by way of an answer on that. But um, I, I think there's a large amount of ideology on our side around the notion of rules-based order. But I do also think you make a very good point that in some ways, China's a bit old-fashioned about this. It's um, it, 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 it's, it's avowedly a revisionist power because it doesn't feel that it needs and should uh, sign up to every uh, rules-based arrangement in the world simply because they exist. And, and China's view is that well, we, we were often not part of negotiating those rules, so why should we be bound by those rules? And I think that's a perfectly legitimate position for a state to hold uh, even if it's one that we we don't like to see them hold, um, but you know, you, you go back to I'll finish on this. You, you go back to Bob Zelik's thing, uh, two thousand seven, about China becoming a responsible stakeholder, and I remember at the time Kevin Rudd embraced this and he loved the notion of was in all these speeches you know, China becoming a responsible stakeholder. But what does that mean? A responsible stakeholder in a U.S. led order. Um, with rules that China had no part in negotiating. And so quite realistically, why would China say, yes, you know, we want to be a responsible stakeholder in that system? 
It's not a system that we help shape or create. Now you flip it over, when China created the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, this is a legitimate, proper, multilateral, rules-based organization. Um, and it's good to see that Australia finally got over the line and, 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 and joined it. Um, but in that, China was saying, look, we tried to reform the IMF, the World Bank. No one would let us reform these uh, bodies to reflect our weight in the international economy. So bugger it, we're going to go off and uh, set up our own. But they set about in a very deliberate way, creating a proper rules-based uh, institution. And why wouldn't the second economy in the world be able to do that? But of course, the US refused to join, tried to stop us joining. And Japan and Canada have still not not joined. And it's bizarre because for Japan, being outside of the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank um, is not only against Japan's own interests, but Japan would have been a dominant influence in shaping the bank in ways which we would find quite acceptable. Uh, as it is, we find the operation of the bank acceptable. But you know, so it's a contest over, over rules and whose rules will apply to whom. Well, we have uh, one hand up, so please do uh, put your, use the reactions function and put your hand up if you have a question for Jeff. But I'll invite John Neve to unmute himself and ask Jeff uh, if you can ask your question, please. Yep, um, my question: um, How do we help? Uh, how do we help China become the uh, global leader that we also desperately need? John, excellent, um, excellent question. I. I, I I'm not also to try and duck out of it a little bit by saying that um, uh, we're not going to get a single global leader. But we do want China, uh, which is already a dominant power, um, to behave in ways which uh, give us um, give us greater certainty um, and, and and behave in ways which are fair and um, which are based on on um, on everyone having a, a reasonable chance in the in the order, and not just based on brute exercise of power. And I don't have an easy answer, a direct answer to that, John. But um, my talk about hedging China uh, is something I see as a strategy uh, to try and shape China's behaviour, uh, so that there is um, there is an order that's based. On, on, on agreements and understandings and on negotiated treaties and outcomes and not just on the uh, brute exercise of power. The optimistic uh, point I, I put on that uh, is that if you follow my argument about China being Prometheus bound, it is constrained in its capacity to shape an order uh, based solely on its own power. So, Jeff, I might give you a couple of questions to try to speed things up a little bit. Uh, we do have an anonymous uh, question from one of our participants, which I'll read out, and then I'll call on Catherine to ask her question. Uh, so the first question is, how can you explain China setting up concentration camps to persecute millions of Uyghurs and other minorities through the perspective of constrained in resources? Uh, and Catherine, I might call on you now to unmute yourself and ask your question. Um, it's with regard to Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, and um, the withdrawal of the US troops come September 
later this year. And I was just wondering what Jeff's thoughts were around that, um, given China's investment, uh, substantial investment in those areas and um, the potential rise, re-rise of the Taliban, and given Australia is looking to develop closer links with India? Yeah, well, in some ways, the two questions basically um, uh, overlap, and that is that uh, they can all be understood, I think, through um, Beijing's concerns about peripheral security. Uh, as I said in the previous answer, or one before, um, uh, Beijing is absolutely paranoid about uh, territorial integrity and keeping the whole show together. And, you know, it's an old joke, just because you're paranoid um, doesn't mean you're not being followed. And China's been fragmented on many occasions. And, um, yeah, look, I mean, the, re the reports such as they are on what's happening in Xinjiang, um, really the enormity of them cannot be... Um, uh, underestimated, but um, from a Beijing perspective, um, this is this is less about ethnicity and more about territorial integrity, and the fear, and that goes to Catherine's question, the fear that uh, China's open porous borders through that region, and if you've travelled through that region, you know that it's impossible to secure them. Uh, you know, the Pamirs are a major bloody uh, open mountain range between Xinjiang and Afghanistan and northern Pakistan, um, and similarly on the, um, on, the, on the western side with, uh, uh, again, Afghanistan and uh, Tajikistan. Um, so uh, this is a major, major strategic headache for China, a major problem for China. Clearly, it has excellent relations with Pakistan. Um, uh, it's, it's, I think, very concerned about Taliban influence uh, from uh, from um, Afghanistan into Xinjiang. And of course, with India, it's got ongoing border issues. But China and India, since they fought a war, a proper war, back in 1961 or two, have managed all these difficulties now for um, 60 odd years. And I do think they've got, um, I do think they've got the capacity to, um, to uh, continue to manage those. But for Beijing, this is a major area of security vulnerability, weakness, um, and, um, and, 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 and real concern. Okay, so uh, we don't, uh, we've got another question here from uh, Bipul. I hope I've said your name correctly. Would you like to ask uh, Jeff a question? Uh, thank you for letting me ask the question. And thanks, Jeff, for your wonderful um, presentation. I want to know if you, we are in the point where Australia-China uh, relationship has deteriorated to the worst point. If you have to tell in one, two, three, like main point, what are the reasons that lead us to this situation? Thanks, people. Um, well, I, I, I think I covered some of them off. Uh, uh, firstly, when the US changed its assessment of China uh, as a, um, uh, a country with which it sought strategic engagement, to one where it sought strategic um, uh, competition and, and uh, containment, uh, then we shifted our assessment of China with the United States because of the very, very close links between our two countries' security and military establishments. Um, 
But secondly, I think a real failure of diplomacy by Australia. I don't think we really had prepared ourselves, even though Hugh White had warned us a decade ago, that foreign policy, strategic policy, diplomacy was going to get really, really hard for Australia, uh, given our economic dependency on China, uh, as China rose and became a dominant assertive power in the region. And the manifestation of that, point three, um, has been that we've handled these issues like banning Huawei, introducing anti-foreign interference law, um, calling for uh, an inquiry into the origins of COVID. Not that there was anything wrong with any one of those policies, but we did it in a completely inept way and did it in a way that made uh, China and the Chinese leadership, Xi Jinping and so on, uh, lose face. And so we're receiving the retaliation and retribution for that. Interesting. Uh, Brenda, we've got a question from Brenda. I'll invite you to uh, unmute yourself. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yep. Wonderful. Um, Jeff, um, do you believe China will move to reunite with Taiwan? And if so, how do you think the US and Australia will respond, given that they've been very loud and vocal about saying we won't let that happen? So, thank you. Yeah, it, it's a question of the day, Brenda. Um, and I don't really have a good answer in the book. Um, I argue and set out quite clearly why I believe that um, Beijing does not have a military option for Taiwan. And I won't go through all of that, but I just don't think there's a military option. And part of it is because, of course, China's utter dependency on world markets for all its energy and resources. There would be a massive uh, economic blockade on China if it were to uh, precipitously uh, try to reunite Taiwan with, China, with the mainland um, using military means. Um, military will continue to be used to harass and unsettle Taiwan. I think that's true. I mean... Xi Jinping has made it a clear objective of his that part of his legacy will be reunification. I, I, I think uh, he'll be lucky if he achieves that. Um, but the best China, well, the best China could do would be make to make the mainland more attractive to Taiwan to to wish to reunify. But that's not going to happen whilst the Communist Party is running the show. So I think there will be uh, pretty much the status quo. Um, but with China trying to undermine, mainland China trying to undermine the legitimacy of, um, of the democratic processes in Taiwan. But again, I'm not sure it's going to be that successful for them because um, if you look at the last election, uh, in terms of political interference, cyber attack, you name it, um, the assault was massive from the mainland on Taiwan and the DPP um, President Tai uh, got a, um, uh, a record high vote. So whatever China did was actually useless. It, it didn't shape the outcome at all. Um, and I think therein is the problem for Beijing. I, I feel Beijing's lost the, um, the younger generation of Taiwan who no longer want, like their parents, to reunify with the mainland uh, and basically want, China to, uh, want, want Taiwan to have an identity that stands apart from the mainland. Um, so that's a very, very, very big challenge for Beijing. And I don't think there's a, a, an easy resolution. As for, as for the US and, and, and Australia and so on, 
I think um, it's not, not a question of reunification that's a problem, it's the means by which it's done. Um, and uh, I, I, I think we will all end up being spectators as China seeks to um, shift opinion in Taiwan in some way uh, towards uh, some form of reunification. Possibly, possibly the best she will achieve in his time will be, um, uh, could be, and this is probably what he's hoping for, the beginning of some process that may lead to reunification, a negotiation process. But uh, we're a long way from that as well at present. I think I have time to squeeze in one brief question, and it's a it's a big question, but it, <laughs> I hope that you can contribute to it. You mentioned that Australia will continue to rely economically on China, but there seems to be a lot of optimism about diversification. What's your view on economic diversification? Is this wishful thinking or are we in a position to really um, move away from China as an economic partner? Well, it's wishful thinking. Uh, who's going to buy the iron ore that, that's keeping the economy going now? other than China. You know, India's steel production is something like, and India's got iron ore in any case, but India's steel production is something like 110 tonnes per annum. Uh, that's where China was in about 1994. So um, diversification is wishful thinking if it means diversification whilst maintaining our living standards. Of course, we can diversify wherever we like and we're free to do so, um, but it will be at a much lower level of living standards than what we have today. And that's partly, I think, uh, something that's missing from the public discussion. The government needs to be more upfront. And when it says we've got choices, sure, but here's the economist in me again, choices at what cost? And how much of a threat does China pose and what price do we really want to pay? And I think that's, that's not properly discussed. Well, on that note, uh, I would like to thank you, Jeff, for this very stimulating discussion. Uh, you've really kicked off our China in Focus seminar series in great style. And I would uh, love to thank our audience for attending this seminar and for the questions that you have posed today. Our next China in Focus seminar will be with Dr. Jason Jiang on alcohol consumption and the risk of stroke in middle-aged and older adults in China. And it's the same time next week. I hope to see you there, but thanks again for attending uh, the seminar today.